is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420-3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420-3XY. Hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves, our 30 minutes or so where we catch up with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. Today's pilot is a journalist, broadcaster, state and national track and road cyclist and one half of a Melbourne breakfast team that dominated the airwaves in the 80s. Square in the video, by a genuine pilot of the airwaves thanks for joining us now before we talk about that stellar broadcasting career let's just spend a couple of minutes with squadron leader peter Meehan, now retired of course and your involvement with our armed forces well uh during my radio career there was an opening came along for media communications within the royal australian air force i came from an air force family father served new guinea world war ii brother served in vietnam and I had done none of that. And I thought this is a marvellous opportunity to join the reserve and get into some media management work at home and offshore. Now, Peter, you come across as somebody who probably had a life before the radio bug hit. Am I right in that assumption? Well, uh, in Western Australia, where I was born and raised, uh, I was fortunate enough to become uh, the West Australian 4,000 metres individual pursuit champion in track cycling. And that brought me to Melbourne to race and take on the, uh, the Victorians who had a different approach to the sport <laughs> and the cold weather and the sleet and going up Tilden Vale Hill when it was snowing was an, uh, a vast and uh, acute education coming from sunny WA. However, uh, I acquitted myself pretty well in that, uh, uh, in that sport. And then in 1966 came the World uh, team's Pursuit Championship here in Melbourne, and I was called in off the interchange bench to join the Australian Team's Pursuit team on the Melbourne Velodrome. That was uh, John uh, Bilsma, John Hine, Malcolm Powell, the Australian road champion, and me off the interchange bench due to an earlier crash on the cycling program. Uh, so off we went, beaten by Italy by two seconds, and uh, the Italian team was uh, led by the very famous... Giordano Taruni, who went on to become world sprint champion. Uh, but it was just a, a wonderful, what's the word? Just, just a wonderful spiritual time uh, 
in my chosen sport prior, weeks before getting into radio. So what did eventually attract you into radio? Listening to Ron Casey at the Melbourne Velodrome describing the Austral wheel race uh, on 3DB. And I went over and I listened to it and I was absolutely fascinated. And I introduced myself to him during a, a down period. He said, oh, look, if you're interested in radio, why don't you go up to 3BA Ballarat? They're always looking for people because they're always sacking people. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting. So I did. I took his advice. And I went to a radio school in Melbourne, got all the contacts. Then I secured an interview up in Ballarat with the management, with about 15 other blokes who wanted a job up there. And uh, a week later, I got a phone call to say I was successful. And I said, why me? Those other blokes, they were all pretty well experienced. He said, uh, you were the only one who turned up to the interview wearing a tie. I went, oh, my goodness. A radio career starts because I was wearing a tie. And that, that has haunted me forever. So how did we end up at 3KZ? Well, uh, I was at 2NX in Newcastle, a part of the 2NX 2SM group. And I was listening to uh, David Jones doing breakfast uh, on 2NX, and he announced the death of John Lennon. Now, I, I sort of just became quite spellbound by that. And uh, after listening to David and we were talking about the death of Lennon, uh, we just started talking about Melbourne Radio. And David had spent a fair bit of time at 3XY prior to going back to 2NX, uh, DJ, uh, as he was affectionately known, uh, on the air. And he said, why don't you give it a go? Uh, breakfast radio in Melbourne is pretty hollow at the moment. Why don't you stick your hand up? So I did. And a fellow called Bill Clements, who was a uh, programming consultant, he uh, heard what I was doing at 2NX. He stitched up an interview at 3KZ. So I came down to Melbourne in uh, December 1980, 81. Who were some of the other announcers on the roster at the time? Uh, let me see. Uh, Peter Rudder, uh, Sel Jones, um, uh, Peter O'Callaghan. They were the uh, they were the uh, they formed the main plank of Three KZ uh, at the time. Uh, Rick Melbourne was there before me, and for some reason he was discharged and he moved on, and that opened up a vacancy for me. But they were all very uh, gifted communicators, guys who knew music far better than myself. Uh, and uh, they were true music jocks. And I think that spelt a lot of success for 3KZ back then in the 70s and the 80s. Music knowledge is not my powerful uh, um, uh, attribute, but the other guys on the air, they were very, very good at it. Peter, I suppose the most important question is, how did the Pete and Liz combination come about? Well, um, I was hosting the breakfast program on my own and we were creating interesting ratings, but not, not, not really good ratings. They were sort of acceptable, but the station wanted to go more. Why don't we introduce a partner? Now, that idea came from an American uh, consultant. No other breakfast program in Melbourne at the time uh, was multi-voiced. Uh, so uh, Liz Sullivan was over at 3XY and we were all enchanted by her spirited laughter and her attitude to life, which was um, uh, effervescent, to, to, to put it mildly. So I, uh, I rang Liz and said, do you want to come over and have a chat? So she came over and we did a little pilot thing together and it was agreed that she should join the program. Well, we immediately had a lift in ratings by one or two points 
because I think the dimension had changed. The added uh, voice and the added content uh, started to make the breakfast program sound quite different. And every other breakfast program in Melbourne was a solo voice, except for John Blackman on 3AW. He would occasionally have uh, Bruce Mansfield in playing a character voice, but that was not a regular part of their of their show. So I suppose we, we set the scene for multi-voice breakfast radio back in 1984, it was. So Peter, what do you believe was the secret ingredient that created that successful chemistry that we could all feel? You have to create what I call passive participation. The audience have got to be able to build a, 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 picture, a picture in their mind of what uh, they're hearing, of what they think we are. I was a little chauvinistic at the time. Uh, Liz was a little bit ribald and rank at the time. And it created a, uh, yeah, like, like an interesting, almost a love-hate relationship. But, but the love cut through because at the end of every day, you could tell that Pete and Liz were pretty good mates and they got on extremely well on the radio. But they did a lot of husband-wife type toing and froing and shyacking with each other, which perhaps that related to the wider uh, mid-parental demographic group, 25 to 39, maybe the, maybe the 40-plus mums and dads with their kids listening in. Speaking with Melbourne 3KZ's Peter Meehan, and Peter, the Ross Stevenson's rating juggernaut seems to revolve around listeners hanging off his intellect, his quick wit, and the balance of the day's news, whereas Pete and Liz seem to develop an audience who considered you as their friends and vice versa. Yes, I think that's very accurate. Uh, we uh, were very uh, welcoming to go out uh, into the suburbs, into the uh, environment of Melbourne and uh, be seen, be known. Uh, we both did a lot of stand-up work uh, together. Uh, you've actually put that very well. I think people looked upon us as people that they liked. Yeah, I reckon that's the simplistic, but the most honest way you, that you could put it. Peter, 3KZ developed an extremely strong affinity with Melbourne through the I Love Melbourne sticker campaign, the back announcing of Melbourne 3KZ and Weather for the World's Greatest City. How much do you think this influenced the success of KZ at the time? Two things uh, were successful, uh, the catalysts to make that really work. Number one, uh, 3KZ was a full-service adult contemporary music news station. To this day in Melbourne, there isn't one. There is a cosmetic news service, but no serious uh, approach towards uh, presenting news as it should be presented. And the other is the, uh, the marketing of the heart, the tram, the tram bell, and the I Love Melbourne um, routine was all a part of the spot welding process of getting into the minds of the audience uh, through the love they have uh, for Melbourne, the love they have for the history of Melbourne, and the iconic sounds of Melbourne, like the tram. All of those things worked. And the other aspect is 3KZ, KZFM, put 9% of its annual profit back into prize giveaway. So 9% of the money that KZ made, and I know I'm not talking out of school because it's been widely promoted, went back to the audience in prize money. Now, that uh, coupled with the marketing of the heart, plus the the full news music programming, was just the it's the complete package. It was back then. Now, speaking of news, 
Two other important team members were Robert Hicks and Barry Owen, with their Hicks-Owen reports being featured during breakfast, including those 15-minute news bulletins. Were they considered a gamble at the time? Oh, you're very astute. That was definitely a gamble at the time. Uh, It was interesting, but it didn't last. And uh, it didn't last for for all the right reasons. It actually was uh, impinging on the successful uh, bubbling format that we were uh, providing through a lot of sheer stupidity and mucking around and cornflakes breakfast. And so the 15-minute bulletin didn't last that long. But Robert Hicks and Barry Owen, they were unique in their time. They were succinct newscasters who nailed the perfect order of news items of importance to what they thought the audience would want to hear. And uh, deadly accurate, extremely professional fellows. Now, Peter, one thing about the show is that it was always fast-paced. Now, was that planning done pre-show, post-show, or just simply in the show? <laughs> it, look, it was uh, all three, I, I would say. Liz and I would get together in the morning. We would sketch out a rough idea of where we need to go. Uh, that sometimes uh, was driven by the mood of Melbourne at the time, like serious news or catastrophes that may have happened in Melbourne at the time, and we needed to take that on board with the stupidity of some of our humour and the way that we mucked around. So that was important to, uh, to get that, that balance. It's just a flick to FM. At 104.3. Now the clock has struck midnight to welcome in 1990 and 3KZ immediately changed to KZFM. Now, Peter, that was probably just a flick of a switch somewhere, but a very costly $32 million flick at that. Uh, Yes, uh, yes, it was. Uh, It was a flick that had to happen. But unfortunately, uh, and this again is not talking out of school, the recession that Australia had to have, says Paul Keating, uh, in 1989, made uh, business not only difficult for KZ, but made it was difficult for all businesses right throughout Australia. So uh, the station had to borrow a considerable amount of money to make the conversion over to FM under the rules of engagement to migrate onto the FM band, again driven by Paul Keating, who put out uh, what I thought were at the time outrageous targets of, of amounts of money to uh, commit to making that transition. So uh, things, uh, things were very difficult for that period. And in the first year or two after the conversion to FM, KZ FM remained uh, number one in breakfast and number one in its target uh, demographics. But the writing was on the wall that things had to change because of the growing strength and the growing momentum of other FM stations in the marketplace. So. The birth of Gold FM followed KZFM. So how smooth was that transfer of a very solid, loyal listener base from the AM band to basically uncharted waters for some on the FM band? I I can only assume um, through the maintenance of the rating numbers at the time, there were fluctuations over the course of a year or two. But I think by and large, the transition went pretty well. We had a TV campaign that... Uh, was driven by the Rocky Horror theme of it is just a step to the left uh, on the FM band. It's just a step to the left, AM to FM. And it was self-explanatory 
marketing campaign on TV, which I think uh, contributed to the success of that transition. Now, that change to FM seemed to provide a bit of a sugar hit with early rating success, after which the format seemed to struggle a bit. Any particular reason for this? Well, the station was going through internal changes, and I left and a number of other people left. uh, When was that? Uh, July 19. Between July and August 1991, a number of us left the station. So the station became uh, rebirthed, if you will, in the gold format with uh, other people on the air. Sean Cosgrave was a major contributor uh, back then. Liz stayed uh, on the air uh, doing uh, breakfast for a little while. Uh, Gavin Wood, prior to him going to America, he came on to Gold FM. And so Gold FM gradually but surely started to uh, develop another royal core without the Pete and Liz influence in in breakfast. It took a long time, but they, they eventually got there. So, Peter, in your experience, how important is a strong breakfast program as a lead-in for the rest of the day? Paramount, must happen, got to be. There's the only advice I could give anyone in radio. There is only one program time slot to do in commercial radio, and that is breakfast. Outside of that, sell shirts at Maya. Tell us some of the positives and negatives of uh, doing breakfast radio, Peter. (laughs) Uh, The positives were a great sense of uh, fulfilment in uh, the growing numbers in uh, support. Uh, That was absolutely terrific. It made sort of uh, going to bed early worthwhile. It made uh, forfeiting a lot of social activity very worthwhile. But the downside was um, Sunday to Thursday, Sunday to Thursday, yes, Sunday to Thursday, I was in bed at eight o'clock every night without fail. Robert Hicks led me astray a couple of times being a wine enthusiast and we were known on only four occasions in 11 years to go straight from dinner to to, to go and do breakfast. Uh, some people said that was some of the best programming that we did. <laughs> However, that's uh, that's subjective. So in terms of your combination, who was more the morning person, you or Liz? Uh, I became the morning person uh, because... It was a sort of a mental commitment that, which came about from my cycling days. It's a, a, a years and years of having a format, a registration format in your brain to do what you've got to do to be successful in track cycling. And I applied exactly the same philosophy into getting out of bed and preparing as best, best I could and to, and to be up on the ball of my foot and get Lizzie up on the ball of her foot right from 5.30 in the morning to hit the, hit the ground running as if we had already been on the air for one hour. The other half of the question, Lizzie was outstanding. She never once uh, arrived late at the station. She, in fact, she was often there before me and uh, she was just as dedicated to the cause of making it work and being successful. She was terrific. Yeah. How good were the three KZ days? They uh, were I, they were outstanding days, indelibly etched in the history of Melbourne radio for all the right reasons, being a full-service music, news, broadcasting operation that fulfilled and ticked all the boxes that the audience, uh, 25 to 39 and 40 to 54 more particularly, uh, wanted. And they, were gravita- they gravitated to that audience 
uh, through the history of KZ, which went back decades before us, a very successful time, but the fulfillment of um, some astute programming decisions made KZ uh, one, of, one of the great radio stations, not only of Melbourne, but of Australia. And a lot of our format ideas were copied by others around the country. So, Peter, after 3KZ, uh, there was a little bit of talkback experience uh, a little further up the dial. Well, after I left KZFM, it became Gold FM, and I went to 3AW, which uh, that was a baptism of fire also, particularly in the corridors of 3AW, where it was a highly competitive environment uh, between the program producers, and you were... uh, thrown into an interview environment, whether you liked it or not. And I absolutely loved it. It was just a wonderful five years uh, at the really the tail end of my broadcasting career. I, I loved it immensely. Okay, Peter, now time for a dozen or so of our stock standard probing jock questions. First up, where were you when you heard that John Lennon died? I was in Newcastle at 2NX2SM, and I couldn't believe my ears when 2NX Breakfast announced that uh, John Lennon uh, had been shot. It was, uh, it was riveting, and it was a very emotional time because Lennon and McCartney at the Beatles period were indelibly etched into the hearts and minds of everybody. It was, it was quite moving. What was that last concert ticket that you paid for? Coldplay at Docklands a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the best concerts ever. Um, my top three, Coldplay, Bruce Springsteen, which I paid for around about the uh, same time, and a concert that I'd like to talk about when we get, when we get to talking about uh, early concerts back in the 60s. The concert that you regret never seeing. Sinatra and Presley. While I was in Vegas, I had the opportunity and never, never took it up. And I went home thinking, how stupid. What, what, was, what, what was I thinking? Not to uh, get myself in to see a Sinatra concert at Sands or Elvis Presley, even in his uh, uh, late days. Uh, that was an opportunity missed. And I'm very sorry about that. What's that word that you had the most trouble pronouncing on air? Uh, it was always Collingwood. I could never say it. It sort of chokes you a bit, doesn't it, Peter? Yes. Well, I'm a Carlton supporter, that's why. Here's one we love to ask. Was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Uh, there were a couple. Uh, Liz and I had a routine one morning, and she said, uh, did you hear the one about the girl who went out with the all-male fishing crew for the weekend. I said, this sounds a bit unusual. Liz said she came home with a red snapper. Now, uh, that caused some shockwaves throughout the management. The audience loved it, but the management, they got themselves a little upset. And, and, the, and the other, when we converted to FM uh, 104.3, uh, I had a phone call from a guy called Sam Schwartz, of the Jewish faith. And he's on the board at the Carlton footy club at the time. And he was wishing us all the best migrating over to the FM band on 104.3. So on radio, I said, Sam Schwartz from the Carlton football club is always looking for a bit of a deal. So while we go to 104.3 for Sam, 
and he's uh, of faith mates, they get a deal, they get it for 104. <laughs> well, it's, you've got to think about a lot of it. <laughs> Skyhooks or Sherbet? Neither. I was, uh, I was too entrenched with uh, the work of Jimi Hendrix at the time, uh, all along the Watchtower, Stone Free, uh, The Doors. The music that Sam Anglesey was playing on 3UZ uh, had me completely indoctrinated with uh, the music of that era, AC, DC, uh, Santana. Santana at Woodstock, 1969, that just fixed me for uh, my, my music tastes forever. The Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Uh, Stones for me. Uh, the, the Beatles, of course, they had their, have, still have to this day, their special place. But the Rolling Stones sort of, they had that rawness about them that when I was 18 uh, and living in Perth, uh, that really struck a chord with me. Now, how's this? How's this for a lineup? At the Capitol Theatre in Perth, 1964, The Bill, Dusty Springfield, Roy Orbison, Intermission, Rolling Stones. Now, that was a concert that uh, has lived with me forever. And one of the most unusual aspects was when, when we were leaving the Capitol Theatre, down in the foyer, two members of the Stones, for the life of me, I can't remember who they were now, were thanking people for coming and signing a few autographs, standing in the foyer of the Capitol Theatre in Perth. So, Peter, are there any treasured pieces of memorabilia you hold on to from those 3KZ days? Um, well, uh, um, we've got a lot of stuff that relates to, to KZ in terms of uh, billboards and stickers and pictures and uh, celebrities who visited the radio station. But one thing that is really uh, I treasure, I really do treasure, and this is away from radio. I spoke earlier about Jordana Taruni, who went on to be world cycling sprint champion, uh, he gave me his uh, cyc silk cycling tie back uh, in the mid-60s, and I still have it to this day. It's a Xenia tie. You would never have bought a Xenia tie in Australia back then, and I treasure it, and I still wear it. Peter, the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Well, the biggest story was perhaps the saddest and the most uh, uh, heart-rendering was the murder of... Uh, Stephen Tynan and Damien Walsh. Well, look, when that happened, um, we, we, just, we just could not believe what we were doing. In the middle of our um, rotten rubbish and bubbly fun and effervescent laughter and carrying on, that uh, brought home the cold, hard reality why you were there and what you must step up to regardless of what comes your way. Well, it still affects me to this day. Peter, you are known around town as one of the best MCs going around. So I wonder, what is the most challenging gig you've ever had to endure? Well, uh, the most difficult one was the day that Carlton played St Kilda uh, down at uh, the St Kilda home ground back in uh, 1980-something or other. And uh, the St Kilda people asked me to come down to present the trophies at the end of the game. And uh, blow me down, St Kilda beat Carlton, uh, the 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 ground on that day was hosed up with a lot of water and it was advantageous, I think, to the, the St Gilda side. But perhaps I shouldn't go down that way. So as soon as I got up on my feet to present the trophies, the St Gilda supporters started throwing full cans of beer at me and telling me to get off the stage and go home. Uh, I stood my ground and uh, laughed about it. But, uh, boy, if I hadn't have ducked 
on at least six or seven occasions, I would have copped a full can of beer in my head uh, as the trophies, trophies were being handed out. The St Kilda board were deeply apologetic at the time, but uh, I was quite glad, quite glad to get out of the St Kilda environment and, uh, and back home that night. Now, for all the people that you have interviewed, is there anyone that you missed out on that you would have loved to have had a chat with? Oh, that would have been Sinatra and Tony Bennett. I'd love to have uh, been able to talk to them about uh, New York, uh, time in Jersey, time in Brooklyn, working with uh, uh, what which was a very difficult period in uh, New York history in terms of street crime and um, all sorts of other uh, criminal activities that were going on at the time. But the stories that Tony Bennett and Sinatra uh, would have had to share, uh, ones that Sinatra started to share towards the end of his life, uh, I would love to, love to have been uh, in, the, in their company. The most interesting, if, if I can say, that still lives with me to this day, was spending a five-hour period with Spike Milligan. He came to uh, Newcastle to appear at the Civic Theatre and uh, he drove up from Sydney with a record rep who he couldn't stand. He came off the air with me. He said, I don't want to get into the company of this record rep. He said, what are you doing for the rest of the day? Can you drive me around Newcastle and show me some of the historic points? He had a fascination for the, uh, uh, the history of uh, early Newcastle buildings, same as Sydney in the Rocks area. And he carried a camera and took photographs of foundations of buildings and historic cornices of the, uh, the early days of Newcastle. Fascinating. Anyway, we spent uh, the whole afternoon driving around, chatting about all sorts of stuff, stupidity that I now can't remember, but it was good fun. It was really, he was such an eccentric to watch, but also an eccentric to be in his company. What you saw on TV with Spike Milligan is exactly what he was like sitting with him and talking to him. Peter, some of the music and albums that were the soundtrack of your teenage years. Um, well, I've, uh, I've got to say the Beach Boys, God Only Knows. Um, Chubby Checker, I didn't like, but if you wanted to get on with the girls at the local dance, you had to learn the twist and like Chubby Checker because they did. Uh, Presley's Jailhouse Rock, It's Now or Never. Uh, Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Good Vibrations from the Beach Boys, the first song I ever played on radio at 3BA Ballarat. And uh, Bobby Darren, Roy Orbison, they were, the, they were the, the collective albums that influenced me back then. Sneak a quick one in here, Peter. You mentioned it before, you're a Carlton supporter. What's the future like for the Blues? The future for Carlton is youth, and the future for Carlton is our current uh, coach, David Teague, who has a magnificent relationship with the players. Uh, the same as David Parkin had back in the 80s and the 90s with the players. They absolutely, they all it really enjoy each other's company, but there will be a cull if it's not already in progress. And we will, uh, again, work towards being reborn. Probably, I would anticipate another couple of years because the guys who will stay, and I don't want to go into names because um, I'm bound to leave someone out, but the guys who will stay to... Uh, 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 to hold the plank, to hold the line together, will be supported by youthful players. So I think not next year, but I reckon the year after, uh, we, we will be contenders in the eight and, uh, and get further into the finals. Finally, Peter, any words of advice you might give to someone looking to start a career in maybe radio or the media? 
I was given some tips by my very first program director. Number one, never believe your publicity because you're only ever having your turn. Work with management, but don't, don't take them too seriously because they're all accountants and they don't understand theatre of the mind. Never promise anyone a grand final ticket. And wherever you go in Melbourne, wear a jacket. You don't have to wear a tie, but keep a tie inside the jacket, top coat pocket. And I so advise. Well, Peter Meehan, a trailblazer in breakfast radio in Melbourne. And it's been great to reminisce with you today. Thanks for your time and all the best for the future. Paul, thanks. Lovely to meet you. Pilots of the Airwaves is available through iTunes and Spotify. Hey, and if you enjoy the chats, give us a like. Catch you next time. Yeah.